This episode contains descriptions of graphic sexual violence, so please listen with caution. He was so hot he thought he was shit on a stick. Hello, Michelle. Geordie, hello. How are are you? you? No, how are you first? How are you? How are you? I said it first. I said it first. (laughs) Well, the blisters are gone from the old face. Oh, glad to hear it. Just maybe let people know if they didn't listen to last week that Michelle sat out in the sun like Joan Collins in the 80s with a mirror underneath her in the bright (laughs) sun and snow and something like 300 million thousand feet high. And she got blisters on her face as a result. People don't do that. It's so bad for you. It wasn't just me. It was also with one of the Beacon twins. We were just drinking wine. Just because a Beacon (laughs) twin tells you to not put sunscreen on, does that mean you should do it? No. Next time. Poor old Jane. She ended up the same as me. Well, she said it felt like she had an acid peel. Oh, well, that's good. I mean, we were both a snake. I literally just have had the scabs fall off. That's how disgusting my face was. (laughs) So people, here is a message. As summer comes, please wear sunscreen. Don't end up like me. SPF it. Don't have a few glasses of vino in in the sun and then end up like a lobster. We've all made that mistake at one point in our lives. But I know better. You should know better. I know better. I'm Australian. (laughs) How are you speaking of Australia? Australia's been treating me fine. The weather's lovely. And I'm going to tell you a little secret about the southeast coast of New South Wales. In April time, Easter time, the ocean is warm. The water is warm. It's the best time of year to swim. They don't tell you that, do they? They don't tell you. And now I'm telling you. (laughs) So now everyone's going to know all... All three of you out there. (laughs) Oh, I wanted to give a couple of shout outs, Michelle. Can I do that, please? Absolutely. Who are we shouting out to? First of all, I'd like to give a shout out to my gorgeous nephew, who I haven't seen for some years, and he's grown. He's very, very tall. He's like a man mountain now. He has been listening to the podcast. So welcome. Welcome, welcome me. Welcome you. Welcome her. Welcome him. Jet Williams, a.k.a my nephew, and Tedgytopia on Instagram. Follow him. He is a graphic designer and he's got some sort of copyright-free something going on. I hope I get this right, Jet. I'm so sorry. I did have a look at the website and I tried to understand, but it's a language which old ladies like me don't understand. Non-fungible something or other and crypto something or other, this and that. Go and have a look for yourself. It's my nephew and I'm very proud of him and he's Gorgeous. Okay, what's the website? Tejitopia. T-E-J-I. So that's one shout out. And I have another shout out to offer to an old time listener, Ren. She has been listening sporadically, but listening nonetheless. And I'd just like to say hello and shout at to her. Hi, Ren. And hi, Ren. And finally, I really want to say a big shout out to Budgie, the drummer from loads of fantastic bands like Susie and the Banshees, The Creatures, formerly The the Slits, because I don't know if he's a listener, and I really hope he is, but he's definitely liked one of our reels. I did tag the Curious Creatures podcast, which we've now given a little big up twice in two two weeks in a row, but there was a massive concrete budgie in the background. That's because I was at my mother's house, and she's got knickknacks, And they're staying in this place, which I call Budgie Smuggler's Rest. So (laughs) 
<laughs> That's why the budgie was there. Oh, honestly. In honour of budgie. So hello, budgie. I hope that you become an eavesdropper. Hi, budgie. Thanks for the view and the like on the reel. Shout out. Shout out. You're getting a shout out. You're getting a shout out. I hope we can find some more concrete birds to enthrall you <laughs> with because Australia doesn't have any real birds. We only have the concrete ones, obviously. Oh, we have real ones. Oh, there are real ones. How's oh, that yes. going? Well, I haven't heard the unusual bird since, okay. that one that sounded like it was being murdered and then gargling to death. Yes. That was an odd one. Well, all the listeners heard that. It was a classic. Maybe not. But let me tell you, I had a funny conversation with my stepmother this week, Michelle. Oh, What's going on? We were having a chat. She was talking. I don't know where it started. We were talking about her neighbours and she was telling me about a lovely lady up the road, two doors up, two doors up. She's a neighbour. Name's Terry. She's a really lovely lady, married, two kids. And she writes books and she's actually a number one bestseller. She said she writes books for Amazon, but actually Amazon are, you know, one of the places where this lady sells her book, but she's actually a proper best-selling author of Bonk Busters, Michelle. Oh. It's sexy stuff. Oh. Bonk Busters. A bodice ripper. She said to me, have you ever heard of her? Her name's Teal Swan. And I said, what? <laughs> Teal Swan? Oh, my God. I said, I know that name. And I was thinking and thinking. And then I thought, oh, hang on a second. We've done an episode about her. Michelle's told me about Teal Swan. She was a porn star. She's also an alien, an Arturic alien or something. And she had a cult. That's right, isn't it, Michelle? Not the porn star bit. I think she was just a fake oh. model. But she definitely was a cult leader. Advocating suicide. For suicide. As yeah, a reset. She was as a reset. Yes, as a reset. Like, just kill yourself as a reset was what she sort of came under fire for, old Teal Swan. Yes. So she lives next door to your stepmom. Two doors up. I was thinking, hang on a sec, maybe don't tell her that we've done an episode because I'm not sure we were very, we weren't really very nice <laughs> about We ripped this the shit out of her. We ripped the shit out of her. <laughs> when, when she said her name's Terry, I said, so where does she get the teal from? Teal Swan. She said, no, T.L. Swan. And I was T-L-S-W. like, uh, 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 maybe that's different. So I Googled, and yes, it is very, very different. T.L. Swan is the name of this neighbor, Terry, who writes yeah. the number one best-selling bonk busters. And she has such titles, nothing to do with Arcturian aliens, nothing to do <laughs> with spiritualism, all to do with titles like The Italian, Gym Junkie. Or Mr. Masters. I wonder what that one's about. Apparently the sex is hot, 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 Michelle. Even my stepmother had a go at reading it. I wonder if Jen's got some T.L. Swan in her library. Next time I'm in Australia, I'll have to go through Jen's bookcase and see if she's also a reader. I'm not saying that Jen reads trash. No. Or that she's into a bonk busters. I'm saying it's possible. Well, we're not saying that T.L. Swan writes trash. Apparently, it's quite something. And actually, wow. Sandra, my stepmother, she had a quick flick. She couldn't help herself. Uh, she had to have a quick flick through. And she found... Geordie, that sounded like you were saying something else. You're disgusting. <laughs> and she found such sentences. And I think she may have misremembered this. But she said there was okay. phrases in there such as, he was so hot, he thought he was shit on a stick. <laughs> and I'm not sure oh if that God. was correctly remembered. <laughs> 
Because everybody finds shit in a stick so sexy. <laughs> it's hot, mate. It's shit hot. Shit oh hot. My God. Shit on a stick. So if that's true, that's so Australian. Oh, he thought he was shit on a stick. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm pretty sure that the shit on a stick, the shit on a stick thing, I'm pretty sure it's different. Like it's it's not a nice thing to say. It's like you can't get no. rid of someone. He's like shit on a stick. Shit I don't on know. A stick. Somehow that oh is my not God. that's not being used correctly. Someone please write in and tell us. <laughs> Aussies, if you have any kind of experience with erotic sentences and you think shit on a stick is hot, please set us right. <laughs> Correct us because to me shit on a stick not sounds sexy. not sexy. In fact, it sounds like Something you would find in the dark recesses of the internet. Oh, Michelle knows all about that. Fetish site. Well, shit on a stick. (laughs) Thank you, Sandra. Wow, that's um, quite an education. Thank you, Sandra. (laughs) So that's all my updates from the land down under. This is my last week here. Sadly, Michelle, as you know very well, I was here for my birth mother's funeral. Sadly, Franny passed away. We did an episode all about Fran previously, and it was, I can't remember the title. It's in season Um, two, I think, but we'll put a link at the bottom, unless it's gone behind the paywall. No, it's still up. And it's an emotional episode from, from eavesdropping because it's very personal and it's very, very sad that um, Fran has passed away and RIP Fran we all yeah we all sent our our love and thoughts and spirit and in fact Michelle if you don't mind I think we might dedicate this episode to Fran but it's one of your one-handers so it better be bloody good or she'll strike you down I wish I'd known in advance um, that we would dedicate this episode to Fran because I would have done something a little more appropriate (laughs) (laughs) how inappropriate is your story today well, it doesn't connect with, with the beauty and joy and loveliness of, of Fran, certainly. It's more actually about what you had just talked about, maybe some false memories. Shit on a stick? Oh. Shit on a stick. <laughs> no, it's not about shit on a stick. <laughs> false memories. Oh, that's exciting because recently I heard somebody talking about the Mandela effect and the way they described it, it wasn't exactly as I remembered it to be. I think it was on that podcast, Curious Creatures, that I keep bloody mentioning. Bloody, bloody, bloody. You can tell I've been in Australia. Bloody budgie. Bloody budgie. Yeah, when it's the Mandela effect, it was called that because people misremember things. They're pretty sure that something's happened. Like, for example, Nelson Mandela died in the 80s rather than be released in the 80s. And then when they find out, oh, he's died again, it's really confusing. And that happens across (laughs) a lot of different things. But actually, it's just a case of proper misremembering. And it was actually the man who wrote Luther. This is our previous episode. I started telling you about the Mandela effect in season one. And it was the man who wrote Luther, his name's Neil, can't remember his last name, the Luther, the TV series with the gorgeous Indra Elba. And in fact, there's a little movie of him on the Netflix at the moment. I enjoyed it. It's always dark, what quite is dark. It? It's Luther. It's the Luther movie. Oh. Luther, the oh, movie. I didn't know there was a movie. Oh, yeah. Speaking of dark, and just I digress very quickly because I know that you love Daisy May Cooper, yes. actress. She's in a new series called Rain Dogs. Yeah. And I didn't love it. Oh. She's great in it. The guy who plays the posh boy gone mad is absolutely brilliant. But at the end of it, I just felt like, 
why did I watch that? Please don't tell us. What did that bring to my life? Mm. How did that nourish my soul? It didn't. Okay. I just felt dirty afterwards and not in a cynical way, more ever just did nothing to uplift my life. Can you give me a, can you give us a little synopsis of that? Well, she's a, a sex worker with a terrible life. Oh. So it's not comedy. It just gets worse and worse and worse. No. And I mean, there's not really comedic moments and she's a brilliant comedic actress, but she's a dark comedian and and that's what this is. There are dark comedic moments in it, but at the end I just thought mm. I really don't need to watch that. I just I just want nice things. I just want fun, happy things. Not that this is going to be a fun, happy so, episode. So, eavesdroppers, uh, a little tip from the recommendation corner. Don't watch it, Michelle says. Do you know what? I actually think that's not a bad idea. We need to do a jingle. Telly Rex, Telly Rex. We got some Telly Rex. We'll do a jingle, but it won't be that one. We'll come up with one. We'll come oh. up with one. Good. It was good, you know, <laughs> they write blue sky Johnny. thinking there, Michelle. But we'll try We'll try a little harder yes. when we're together next week. Well, it's actually, it's in a matter of days. So basically, if you were to give me a report card, it would say must, must try, try harder. harder. Yeah. Well, to be fair, it was off the cuff. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. It was off the cuff of my robe that I have on Dirty once again. Terry yes, thank Charlie. you so much. Yeah. But anyway, look, back to the story. Anyone who's been a long-time eavesdropper, they will know that we love a case of repressed memories, false memories. We love looking at how the mind works and what that yeah. means for people. And with that in mind, I thought to myself – has there ever been a person who has committed a murder but forgot they did it? Well, this is what I meant to say to you before when I was mentioning the guy who wrote Luther, and that's what kicked off our episode about the Mandela effect. He got really drunk one night and misremembered or dreamt that he did murder someone, a homeless person, on his way home from a party, and for years he thought he had murdered someone. Yes. But he hadn't. No. Because he looked it up, he Googled it and he didn't. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, you know, I think that I've had dreams. Memories and dreams get all mashed up together. And I think I actually mentioned on that episode where I felt like I had this vague feeling that in my dreams I'd murdered someone. And then you, as that guy did, you begin to think, did I actually bloody murder someone? Did I really do it? Yeah, and I don't even like talking about that because it does creep me out. I mean, I didn't murder anyone, but then you just think, God, you know, what if I did? And actually, yeah. to be fair, I am part murderer at the moment what do you mean well what have you done actually i'm part psychic part psychic murderer Sh right should now should you be telling people <laughs> should you get this down on tape i'm not sure if you want do to confess to being part murderer right now we have a cave in our apartment you found a body oh i wish no i don't wish i found a body you wish no oh I, don't wish. I don't wish no we have a cave and we keep stuff in there our bikes and whatnot but also bodies Look, newsflash people, I do dye my hair and I've got my hair dye out of the uh, <laughs> cave. And do you know what? I've got it in this bag. I put the bag into the bathroom and I had a, a robe. I have a hair dye robe that I have. More robes. More robes. There's a whole wardrobe of them. I've got a lot of robes, I have to tell you. In different degrees of filthiness, all in a row. Why do you say that? I've, they're very clean, lovely, expensive, beautiful robes. Thank you very One's much. One's covered in hair dye. This one's covered in muck. Well, I'd get my hair bag. I've got my hair bag <laughs> and I've got my hair rope. Anyway, I had a flash of instinct and I call it psychic premonition. I thought, imagine if I picked my robe up out of this bag and there was a mouse under there. Well, what happened, Geordie? Oh, you had a premonition. 
there was a mouse. I did. I was I was fucking psychic. I picked up my robe. There was a mouse. I screamed, dropped this bag. This mouse went and dived oh. down further into the bag. And I was like, what the fuck do I do? What the fuck do I do? And I just thought, right, I shut the bathroom door. I thought I have to take this bloody mouse and this bag outside because I thought I'll just throw the bag outside, tip it up so the mouse can run free. Well, picked up this bag. What did that bloody mouse do? It jumped out of the bag. Into your face. Out of the bag. <laughs> For a tasty treat. Some of those open Jesus wounds. Christ. I'm sorry. I don't know what's happening. Oh, my God. With oh, nibbling my scabby blisters. You're ah. disgusting. Well, I didn't say that. Well, do you know what? And so I shut the door and I didn't know what to do. So I got the biscuits. I shook them. What biscuits? Queenie, come here. Oh, I see the cat biscuits. Okay. The cat biscuits. I called that cat in. I threw a handful of biscuits into that bathroom. Within seconds, that mouse was dead in her mouth. I feel like I'm a psychic murderer. If that mouse had just stayed in the bag, it would have run free outside. Oh, my God, Michelle. You set it up. You set in motion a series of events that culminated in the death of that mouse. I know. And it haunts me. I feel terrible. I do feel like a psychic murderer right Mm. now. Well, good, because you should. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, anyway, look. Back to the story at hand here because... I can't wait to see where we're going with this. With all of these bloody repressed memory things, because I am actually at the moment a murderer, but not in my dreams. You know, I went hard on the DuckDuckGo. And what I actually found was a case that the New Yorker did an expose on. And it blew my mind because it is so twisted. You can hardly even believe that it happened. Oh, I love it when it gets twisted. Most of my info today comes from an article by Rachel Aviv in The New Yorker. And full disclosure, there's also a documentary that's come out about this in the past year. But I didn't watch it. Okay. But I will link to it in case anyone wants to know more about it. I'm going to take you back to my favorite decade. The 80s. The 80s. Love it. You knew it. You knew it. And this is slap bang in the middle of the 80s when a 68-year-old granny called Helen Wilson was – oh, trigger warning, actually. Trigger okay. warning. Now she I tells I need to us. trigger warning here. Okay, I know. Put Sorry, down that pancake. Put down that breakfast burrito. Trigger warning. Warning. Trigger warning. Look out. Trigger Oh, my goodness. Warning. The chips. Brace yourself, Mavis. So, Granny Helen Wilson was found, trigger, strangled and raped in her apartment in Beatrice, Nebraska in 1985. When police arrived on the scene, they discovered a knife on the ground in the bedroom and blood on the corner of her bed and on the wall. And it did look like Helen had tried to fight off her attacker because she had defensive wounds, but weirdly, her face had been wrapped in a tea towel or some kind of clothing so you couldn't see her face and her hands were tied up and trigger again here her body had been mutilated she had multiple broken ribs and this is grim as well her attacker had not used a condom because they found semen in her vagina and her anus and I'm really sorry to have to say that but it kind of relates to the case and what comes out that was a lot I know it is a lot she's 68 and also I want to point out here 
the reason I say those details is because it shows that this killer was not Doesn't cautious. Yeah. Blood everywhere, semen everywhere, a oh lot of DNA evidence. So please keep that in mind while I tell you this story. It was brutal. And it really shook the town of Beatrice, which at the time was tiny, 12,000 residents. Everybody knew everybody. Yeah, and kind of a predominantly low socioeconomic status in this town. But the brutality of this case isn't really what makes it remarkable. It's what came next, Geordie. What? I'm not going to get to the meat of this case right away. Instead, I'm going to tell you about a woman called Ada Joanne Taylor. She's known really just as Joanne. She grew up on a cattle farm in North Carolina. And in 1981, when she was 18, she followed a boyfriend to Beatrice because she was pregnant with his kid. Three weeks later, after they got to Beatrice, he left her. And she had the baby on her own. She enrolled herself back at school. She went to Beatrice High School. And she just tried to do her best oh, to bring up her daughter. On her own? Mm-hmm. So she put herself back into school. This isn't even her hometown. Nope. And she's on her own with a baby. He's fucked off. He's fucked off. She's doing her best to bring up her daughter, Rachel, on her own. So, you know, what she was going through was was pretty tough. But the thing with Joanne was she wasn't particularly well-liked around town. Why not? She was known to be a bit of a bully. And she was not nice to people. And she was always making provocative statements. In the New Yorker article, they gave an example of this and she'd say things just to be outrageous and she'd go up to strangers and she'd say things like, I come from a very suicide attempting home. Wow. And then just walk away. Okay. So she was a provocateur. Yeah. And like I said, a bit of a bully. And she was also a hard drinker. You know, she hung out with bikers and misfits and she was known as being quite a disagreeable person. And eventually, Child Protection Services recommended that Joanne see a psychologist and she did. She started seeing a therapist called Wayne Price in an attempt to try to make her a better parent to her daughter Rachel. Yeah. Joanne had had a terrible life. She'd been taken away and put into foster care when she was 11. And this was after it was discovered that her stepfather had been sexually abusing her. Oh God. This girl, she didn't have a good life from the get-go in the end her psychologist Wayne Price diagnosed her with borderline personality disorder and eventually he suggested to Joanne that she give up her daughter for adoption and she did at what point in Rachel's life did that happen pretty young I think she was under two okay she gave up Rachel she moved to LA where she became a sex worker I mean, her story is fucking heartbreaking. Mm. And I think giving up her daughter really weighed heavily on her because a few months later, Joanne went back to Beatrice with a guy called Joseph White, who she met in LA. And Joseph had been making gay porn films in LA, but he really wanted to help Joanne get her daughter back. So they went, both of them, back to Beatrice. But what they didn't realise was that it was way too late. Joanne had lost all her rights as a parent to get Rachel back. Yeah. It was over. But wanting to be close to Rachel, Joanne stayed in Beatrice. And a few months later, that's when Helen Wilson was raped and murdered in her apartment. The killer wasn't careful. And when the police went through the apartment, they found type B blood on Helen's mattress. 
on Helen's wall and Helen's underwear and, you know, semen in her body because she'd been anally raped. And because of that, because of the anal rape, the police assumed, we're talking 1985 here. I can see where this is going. They assumed that the killer was most likely homosexual. And in fact, they did a psychological profile that was developed by the FBI on who this killer might be. And they concluded that the killer was most likely a loner who collected porn and was odd and wimpy. I say that in air quotes. Wow. Yeah. Actual words. Just weird. And the thing is, they had no leads on who killed Helen. So the police put a voice-activated tape recorder inside a flower pot at a grave in case there were any weird mourners. Gosh. And more than that, they asked uh, the owner of an adult bookstore in Beatrice for a list of known gay men. And more than 300 people in the town were interviewed, including the guy Joanne had come back to Beatrice with, Joseph White. Of course, because he's a stranger. He'd never met Helen. And he was eliminated as a suspect because his blood type wasn't type B. Okay. Game over. Done. As for Joanne, three weeks after Helen was murdered, she realized she would never be allowed to have contact with her daughter or be a part of her life. She was like, I'm out of here. And she went back to North Carolina where she'd grown up, where she stopped drinking and she tried to get herself back on track. In the meantime, though, back in Beatrice, Helen's case went cold. But there was a hog farmer called Burdett Searcy, who was a former Beatrice police officer, who decided he was going to become a bit of a sleuth and crack this case of Helen, Helen's rapist and murderer, on his own. So he started investigating. And in fact, two years after the crime, Burdett Searcy gave up hog farming and got a job as a deputy in the Gage County Sheriff's Office, where he worked on Helen's case, even though the Beatrice Police Department had the case. And one of the people he would continuously bounce ideas and theories against was Joanne's therapist, Wayne Price. Because the town saw this guy as a bit of a behavioural expert and they used him as a consulting psychologist for the police. Uh And this guy, Wayne Price, he was also a sheriff's deputy. So he's in the police force. Oh God, he's got it all going on. Yeah. So he's well placed to be the profiler. Now, how this all comes together is that in 1989, four years after Helen was murdered, Burdett Searcy got an arrest warrant for Joanne and for Joseph, the guy that she had come to town with, because he heard from a 17-year-old girl in town who had mental health issues that she had heard Joanne and Joseph bragging about committing the murder. Jesus. Now, by this time, Joseph had moved to Alabama. Alabama. I don't know why I said Alabama. He'd moved away. So Burdett Searcy and Wayne Price, the psychologist, as well as the sheriff, went to Alabama to arrest him. Okay. They, they felt strongly about it. They did. And one of the questions they kept asking was, are you a homosexual? And Joseph's like... I'm bi, but also I didn't kill that lady. Yeah. So they didn't care. They arrested him. Wow. And then they went to North Carolina to arrest Joanne. Here's where shit gets dark because Burdett Searcy grilled Joanne and Joseph for hours before the conversation was videoed. 
Oh, where right in those hours that weren't videoed, he told both of them all about the crime. Oh. And by the time the interrogation was Planting taped, seeds. Yep, Joanne was taking responsibility for the murder and saying that Joseph oh, had pressured her into doing it. Wow, the fact you can do that to yep. someone's mind. But when she was asked for details, she was like, oh, I can't recall any. And she actually says when pressed, I'm still drawing a blank. So she's like, I did it, but I don't remember anything about it. Then Burdette Cece says, maybe she doesn't want to remember. And she says, I block a a lot of bad things out. I always have. I have problems. There's a lot in my childhood I can't remember. So what you've got here is a vulnerable person who's been abused, had a kid basically taken away from her by the psychologist that's interviewing here in the interview. This is the guy. Mm. He's saying to Joanne, you did it. And she's like, yeah, okay, I did because I do block out things. I do have holes in my memory. Maybe you're right. So after her confession, Joanne asked for private counselling sessions with Wayne Price, her old therapist. And he told her, look, if you just relax, memories are more likely to occur and your memories might occur in dreams and they might occur in bits and pieces. So it's not looking good for Joanne. No, because they also might occur as he feeds them to her. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And when a second psychologist evaluated her, she says, in my head and my heart, I know I wasn't there. Mm. But after several interviews with various people, she started to believe that she did it. Wow. And Burdette Searcy is taped outlining her role in the murder, telling her things about the crime and saying stuff like, let that build and think about it if you can. Oh Feeding her information. Goodness. She did. She started to create her own narrative and she wow. put herself in that murder in her mind. And she is reported as saying about Helen's rape, I can put myself in her place because I've been through the sexual abuse and that's what makes this rough on me. Yeah. Now, at first, Joanne told Burdette Searcy that Helen's rape had happened in a white, single-storey house with a porch. Except Helen lived on the first floor of an apartment building. And the house that Joanne grew up in was a white house with a porch. So she's placing her own memories of being sexually abused onto what happened to Helen. Then, after she was told that Helen's murder and rape happened in an apartment... She changed her story. And then she also said that during the rape, she heard Joseph say to her, Joanne, you know you deserve it. But it sounded like her stepfather's voice. So Joanne's mind is all mixed up. They showed her photographs of the scene, (gasps) of the crime scene. And Joanne changed her story again. She then said she picked up a pillow from the couch and held it over Helen's face in an act of compassion. And in interviews, she said, I know with my rape, my father's face has haunted me all my life and I didn't want Helen to see the face that would haunt her. Then she says, thing is, she pressed too hard and she said, I didn't realise I was killing her by putting the pillow over her face. Is that how she died? No. She was strangled and murdered and mutilated. Right. The actual facts of the case meant nothing because here they had a, a woman who's come the, forward she's confessing. The beans, yeah. Yep. But the thing is, what Joanne said in her first confession was that there was another boy in Helen's apartment that night. 
So remember, we've got here already Joanne and Joseph at the rape. Now, with guidance, she was told to pick out another person who was with her. Oh, God. And she picked out one of her high school classmates, a guy called Tom Winslow, who Burdett Searcy considered bisexual. Now, at this stage, Tom was 23 and he was quite a feminine-looking guy. He'd been bullied at school and he too had seen Wayne Price for therapy. Oh, my goodness. So he was hauled in for questioning and after, again, an untaped interview for hours and hours. This guy's got the moves. Before, Mm. yep, uh, he had that. And then by the time the video interview began, Tom was also confessing to the murder. And he says he was pressured into going there but left the apartment before the murder. And this guy was arrested despite the fact he too did not have type B blood. Mm-hmm. So at this stage, we have three people who have all confessed to killing Helen, but none of them have type B blood. And it doesn't end there because a woman called Deborah Sheldon, who was 30, who was married with a child, who had a learning disability and was also Helen's grandniece, Helen, the woman who was murdered. Yes. Well, she hung out with Joanne's crowd of misfits And she too had been sexually abused as a child by her stepfather. And somehow she was hauled in for questioning over the murder. Well, by the time her interview was taped, after hours of interrogation, she then told Burdett Searcy she helped the other three get into the apartment. But when she saw what was happening, she then tried to stop it. But it was too late. Her blood type isn't type B either. This is like a witch hunt. This is like proper witch hunt. Crazy, crazy stuff. They are getting these people to confess to things. I mean, who knows? I mean, you're going to tell me what happens in the end. But so far, my mind is racing ahead, trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And why does this bird at Circe, why was he so damn intent on solving this case only to go after this bunch of people who all seem to have... Connections back to him. It's weird. Yeah. It's really weird. Well, you know because, what I think. Yeah. Well, what happened next was Burdett Searcy pressed Deborah. Was there a fifth person there? Oh, for God's sake. This is getting stupid. Yep. And he then brought Wayne Price in to help her try and remember mm-hmm. because Deborah's lawyer assumed that Deborah was so traumatized by the murder that she'd forgotten what had happened. And they needed Wayne Price to come in and save the day and help her remember all the details. It also turns out that 10 years earlier, in Beatrice, uh, there was a child welfare officer who'd become worried about Deborah's parenting skills. Uh. Wayne Price had been appointed to help her. And Mm. like Joanne, he had eventually convinced her to give up her parental rights to her child. (sighs) This guy. And you know what? After her session with Wayne Price... Deborah apparently had a dream. She pointed the finger at her husband's friend, James Dean, and said he was in the apartment too that night. And she said, I was blocking it, I guess. And that's what she told Burdett Searcy. I guess I'd been blocking that James Dean had been there. So they went and arrested this guy, James Dean. And this guy, James, was shocked. He was apparently screaming at police. I've been arrested for something I know literally nothing about. So the 
What did the police do? They called Wayne Price in to help James Dean calm down. And it turns out that during a long session with Wayne Price, he convinced James that he was repressing memories of the murder. And six days after James's session with Wayne Price, he too confessed to Burdett Searcy that he had been there during Helen's murder. What is his magic powder? Power. Power. Powder? (laughs) What is his magic power, this guy? Oh, man. It's insane because obviously they are very, very good at mind manipulation. And the thing is, James's blood. Not type B. Not type B. Not type B. No. So the police say to him, James, listen, there must have been a sixth person there. Just remember, was there anyone else in the room? They they want everybody to confess so they can finally find somebody with a type B and then they've got them all. Exactly. This is ridiculous. Yeah. So the police are there urging poor old James Dean to, to remember who else was there. I wonder what Wayne Price's blood type is. Yeah, <laughs> and Burdett Searcy's. But five weeks after James's arrest and yeah. after a lot of coaxing from police, James dreamed that, yes, indeed, there was a sixth person dreamed. there. A woman called Kathy Gonzalez who had lived in the apartment above Helen. Right. And the next day, Kathy was arrested and she too was like, what the actual fuck? No one is safe. What? No type B. She had type B blood. Oh, she did. She did. And you know what else? Two days after her arrest, Wayne Price (gasps) visited her in jail to try and bring out some memories about the murder because guess what? She had zero memories of anything. Right. And Wayne Price is like, don't worry. It's normal not to remember. You know, and he said to her, if I'd seen what had taken place, I too would have blanked it out. And he assured her that her memories would come to the surface. (sighs) But when Kathy got to Gage County Jail, she confronted Deborah and Joanne and was like, why the fuck are you saying I'm involved? And Deborah apparently laughed and said, I don't know. I just remember you. (laughs) I just remember you. And that's why I just put you in the the scene. And Joanne said to her, yeah. And Joanne actually said to her, I don't actually remember you being there. Uh Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Bullshit. So we have six suspects, all all arrested and only one with type B blood. And remember, this is the 80s. So DNA testing, I think, is not so readily applied. Mm. It's not great. So it's all sort of hearsay and bullshit. Mm. And what we have here are six people with troubled backgrounds, five from broken homes, with family members who had abused them. And look, in this New Yorker article, it was really interesting because it said, like many young people, they were insincere and confused. And they had troubled backgrounds and they had an innate sense that they were guilty of something. They were people that felt that they were just guilty. And in this case, they were literally told what they were guilty of. And they, they started being called the Beatrice Six. Right. The Beatrice Six. They all had psychological, emotional, mental health issues. And the longer that time went on, the more they all believed they committed this crime. Hmm. And in fact, James Dean dreamed about the crime and recalled so many new details. He gave eight different statements about his involvement in this murder 
And more than that, he felt so guilty about what he'd done. He once apparently pointed to a wall and said, I wouldn't care if they stood me against that wall and shot me for what I did. Wowee, that's too much. This guy now wants to kill himself because he's so appalled at what he's supposed to have done. Yep. It's really tragic. But the thing is for Joanne, she apparently had said that her confessions of the crime were cathartic for her and that she felt that her confessions were helping her to become a better person. And apparently she saw Wayne Price as her champion and emotional guide. Yeah. And she said she felt grateful to him because in one interview she said, I can handle my memory now. And that she finally felt like a complete person. And she described this new Joanne who had confessed as easygoing and soft and who got along with people. Mm. And it was all thanks to Wayne Price. It's a lot there because I'm wondering if the fact that she, you know, she was obviously the victim of some uh, horrific abuse from her own stepfather. But she's probably never confronted it before in lieu of her own therapy this is almost like a sick form of therapy in a way that Wayne Price has got her to confess to something, to remember something that didn't actually happen, but it did for her, but not to the actual victim of this crime, Helen. It happened to, it happened to her, Joanne. Yeah. That's why it's cathartic, because she's feeling the catharsism. <laughs> she's feeling that relief from the memories that she's able to process and it's probably easier for her to process it if she imagines imagines it happening to somebody else. Well, I think they all have some element of that. But at the trial, you know, Deborah, she was the first one to plead guilty. And she said, the neighbor. I was there at the scene. The niece. The niece. Helen's okay, niece, right. Yes. Yes. Who apparently let them in. She said, I was there at the scene and I should be properly punished is what okay. she told the judge. Right. James Dean followed, saying that in dreams he'd remembered more than 80% of the crime. And a few months later, Joanne pleaded guilty too. And at her trial, she was asked, can you actually separate today what you remember from the night this happened and what was suggested to you to help you remember what happened that night? Okay. And she replied, no, Hmm. it would be almost impossible to separate. Then they said to her, tell me what parts you actually remember that you didn't have to have suggested to you is there anything? And she said, no, no, not that I can remember. Mm. She said, I know there is somewhere, but I can't remember. And this is at the trial, you know, she's saying like everything was suggested to her, but she doesn't really have any memories. And Tom Winslow, he said he was not involved, but he and Kathy Gonzalez actually pleaded no contest. What does that mean? Well, no contest means they're not going to plead guilty or not guilty. They're just going to plead no contest and accept the punishment. Right. Yeah. Weird. Because they said they had no memory of Helen's murder and they could not plead guilty or not guilty. Okay. Because they had no memory of any of it. And for me, that's really weird that they didn't plead guilty and instead went with no contest. But what did come out later was that it turns out they were afraid if they went to trial, Mm -hmm. they would face the electric chair. Oh. And who told them this? Vincent Price. (laughs) His name's not Vincent Price, is it? (laughs) Wayne Price, Burdett, Searcy, the sheriff, the the deputies. Oh. They all told them. Bunch of buggers. That if they went to trial, it was likely that they would 
get the electric chair. So they opted for jail rather than death. And that's also why they pleaded no contest. And actually there was a poor people. I know. And there was a quote in the article that said, Kathy Gonzalez described herself as polished trailer trash. And she had said of the whole thing, they managed to get a bunch of people that really didn't have important lives. We weren't very well educated. We weren't really conducting our lives in a Christian manner for the most part. And they just got rid of us. None of us were innocent. We were all broken in one way, shape or form. Wow. And the thing is, they weren't innocent in their lives, but they definitely did not commit this murder. Yeah. But I think Kathy Gonzalez is, is right. They were just brushed away and yep. charged with this murder. Now, at the trial, Joseph White, who was the one who came with Joanne at the beginning to help try and get her daughter back from L.A., He was the only one who tried to prove that he was innocent. And he asked for DNA testing, but his motion was denied. Why? Because he he had the finger pointed at him for rape and murder. The only evidence against this poor guy were the confessions of the others. No forensics, nothing. But it didn't matter. The other five threw him under the bus because at that stage, everyone else in this Beatrice Six... They had become to each other the evil stepfather that abused them, the abusive brother-in-law, the bully, the monster. And Joseph White, who really there was nothing, nothing on him, no evidence, nothing. He was found guilty with the others and he was sentenced to life in prison. Joanne got 40 years (gasps) and she was sent to Nebraska Correctional Centre for Women. And a psychiatrist at the prison wrote that she suffered from flashbacks of her crime Mm. and that apparently she felt like she was capable of more evil than she'd realized and the psychiatrist wrote she's fearful of losing control of her mind well that's because somebody got in there with their little fingers and manipulated it absolutely but at no point did joanne ever say i didn't do it i Mm. didn't commit this crime Mm. and apparently her family even assumed that she was guilty because she was so convinced of her own guilt. And on that note, Deborah never said she was innocent either. And, you know, like I said, she had a learning disability. They really just targeted her. So Burdett, CSE, Wayne Price did a number on these people. Yeah, they were cannon fodder, really. Yep. James Dean, he was sentenced to 10 years. But, so, you know, a year after he'd confessed, he actually began to wonder, am I really guilty? Huh. He was such a broken person. He felt that he had no recourse to appeal his, his guilt. So he just accepted his punishment for something that he thought, fuck, I actually don't think I had any part of this. Joseph White, however, he was the only one who did not give up because he knew, he knew that he had nothing to do with this murder. He was very firm in his convictions. And at the Nebraska State Penitentiary, he started working in the wood shop. And when you're there working in the prison programs, you do get a little bit of payment. He saved all his money that he earned to hire a new lawyer. And in 2001, Nebraska passed a law allowing convicted felons to seek DNA testing. Ah. And he used all his money to hire a new lawyer who then filed a motion to request new DNA testing. 
Now, Joseph then tried to persuade Tom Winslow, yeah. uh, who had been sentenced to 50 years, to also petition for DNA testing. Okay. Were they in the same prison? I think they must have been. Okay. Thing is, Tom Winslow was the one that was very effeminate. Right. And after a decade of just being repeatedly raped in prison, oh, for God's he was sake. a broken person and he was like... I don't have it in me to petition for this DNA testing. He was just a shell of a person and he just accepted his fate, even though he had no memory of anything. He was certain now that he had no memory of that that crime. But Joseph didn't give up. And eventually he convinced Tom to also be involved in this DNA testing. And in fact, both he and Joseph had samples of their DNA taken and this is now 2008 so this law got passed in 2001 it took seven years for them to be able to even give their dna for testing in this this case travesty this entire story it makes me so angry my blood is boiling well it will come as no surprise to you then that in 2008 after their dna samples have been taken and the tests have been completed it did show that both Joseph and Tom were excluded from being the source of the blood or the semen at the crime. Which means that they need to go back and re-examine all the other five who were involved, or four. How many were there? There were the Beatrice six, so two of them have been excluded now. So there's four more people that need to be looked at. And that's what happened. They then went and examined James Dean's DNA Surprise, surprise, it showed he was not the source of the blood or the semen either. And in fact, all the DNA from both the blood and the semen was tested and it showed that it came from an unknown male. So Kathy Gonzalez might have had type B blood, but it was male blood. So what the fuck, you know? Unknown meaning it wasn't on file. It wasn't someone who had committed a crime previously that they might have had DNA samples of on file? No. What it meant at that point was it was an, from an unknown male that was not part of that Beatrice Six. Okay. And so obviously this sent the Nebraska Attorney General's office into a fucking spin because they had six people who had been wrongly jailed, three of them for 19 years who had literally no connection to this crime. So they then put a task force together to follow up on any leads that they may have missed from the original case files. And honestly, it only took them two months to find a match for the DNA of the unknown male. Yeah. And it was a guy called Bruce Allen Smith, who at the time of Helen's murder was a juvenile delinquent whose grandmother lived in the same building as Helen. no. Yep. Worst of all, he never, ever went to trial for his crime. Because? He had died of AIDS in Oklahoma seven years after murder of Helen. Oh, God. What a story, Michelle. Oh, man. So, look, in early 2009... The Beatrice Six were declared innocent and not beyond a reasonable doubt, but beyond all doubt. And it was the largest case where DNA evidence exonerated people with false confessions in the history of the American judicial system. So Joanne Taylor, Joseph White, 
Tom Winslow, who were all still in jail, they were immediately released. While James Dean, Kathy Gonzalez and Deborah Sheldon, they were already out of prison because they had been model prisoners and they were freed uh, within 10 years of their sentence. But they still had 10 years of their lives taken from them. I think between five and 10 years. So yes, they did have time taken from them for crimes they did not commit. But look, even though they were all declared innocent, they still had to file applications to be pardoned. Uh-huh. Yeah, because even though they were declared innocent, some weird twist of the law meant that they had to apply to be pardoned of their crime. It's weird. Thing is, these people were still so fucked up mentally that Deborah Sheldon, in her pardon application, wrote, I was present and observed Joseph White and Thomas Winslow on top of Helen Wilson. And then she says, to my knowledge, Mr. Smith was not present at the time. I was in the apartment. That was her pardon application. And she, after all these years, even though it was proved, she was not even there. She still thought she did it. She could not be convinced. And all six pardons were granted. And after Joanne was released, she really struggled with false memories. And she said... If I didn't put the pillow over her head, why do I keep having these thoughts and visions? And she even said she had the sensory memories of the pillow in her hands. She could feel it. She could feel the texture of the pillow in her hands that she had killed Helen with. So these people were mentally fucked. They were destroyed. Now, Joseph White, who was the one that initially saved up all his woodworking money to like get this DNA testing. He sued Beatrice County for violating his civil rights. Good, yes. But in 2012, right after filing the lawsuit, he died in a coal refinery accident where he was working. Oh, Oh. what a shitty life. Oh, man. So awful. But the other five continued his lawsuit. Eventually, the case did go to trial where a Nebraska psychiatrist basically told the jury that Joanne, James and Deborah all suffered from Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, and he described it as a brutal kind of psychological bonding to someone who has total control over you. He said Wayne Price was that person and that Wayne Price implanted his own belief system into his captives. And the captives were the people that he was psychologically guiding and training yeah. into yeah. confessing to these crimes. Yes. Yep. So what happened to him? Did anybody then turn it around and make him pay for what he had done? No. Because the thing is, in Beatrice, everyone loves Wayne Price. Really? He's a charming guy, uh, friends with everyone. And the people in Beatrice, like they had a hard time wrapping their heads around this whole thing because basically Wayne Price was a psychologist and a deputy. So he had the trust of an entire town and the court concluded that Wayne Price was so focused on unpicking the crime that he lost sight of the vulnerabilities of these six people. But nothing ever happened to him. And look, it's interesting because in the New Yorker article, it says that research shows that the people most susceptible to false memories use dissociation as a coping mechanism. And dissociation 
is really a common condition for victims of sexual violence because they learn how to detach from the moment. So they feel like they weren't fully there. And false memories also affect people with stable backgrounds as well. And studies show that anyone can struggle to distinguish between experiences that they personally had themselves and stories that they absorb from other people. And in fact, studies also show that the more often a story is told, the more likely that memories are implanted. Yeah, I believe that. Absolutely. Highly suggestive, repetitive interviews. You know, you do it enough and people believe that they've committed a crime that are detailed, multi-sensory, and that's what's happened here. And that's what Price knew, yeah. Yep. What happened to these five that survived? Well, the lawsuit was filed in 2009 against the county of Beatrice, and people of Beatrice hated the Beatrice Six. And many of the people in town, yep, they hate them because they believe they're still guilty, even though it's been proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're innocent. And they all believe that these six people had something to do with the crime, despite everything. People were like, I can't believe those six got away with it. They were furious that they were being sued and it got nasty and ugly. But in March 2019, the Supreme Court upheld the conviction of this lawsuit against Beatrice, 28.1 million in damages was awarded to the Beatrice Six. Good, good. Which represents more than three times the annual budget of the whole of Gage County. Okay, well, I think that's fair. (laughs) Yep. So to pay the compensation back, the county has had to hike up property tax. Oh, that's not so good. And all sorts of things, which has pissed off everybody in the town. Yeah, now everyone hates them even more, yeah. Hates them even more. That's a lose-lose, apart from some cash. But the thing is, the damage is real, you know. Their lives are fucked. These people struggle with truth. They struggle with reality. They don't know what memories are real, what aren't. They've been incarcerated. They've had years taken away from their life. They've been... Abuses faced in prison. Yep. And no amount of money will ever get that time back or put them together again as whole people. And obviously, the real killer never was punished for his crime. So unfair. That's basically the story of the Beatrice Six. That's incredible, Michelle. And let me tell you, I know for certain that Franny would have loved that. She had a bit of a thing for oh, murders and murderers. Did she? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Franny had a rich life full of interesting things. And Franny, I hope I did that story justice for you. Yeah, and- absolutely. She'd have loved that one. It would have kept her on the edge of her seat. She loved all that kind of twisty, turny tales. So thank you. That one's for you, Franny. We got a bit bleak. We got a bit dumb. We're two birds yakking. Just having a laugh. Michelle, let me tell you something. When we're talking about memories, I had a bit of a jolt this afternoon when I was talking to my aunt. She said that when I was about three and my family lived in a caravan, that She remembers going for Mm -hmm. afternoon tea with her aunt, her aunt Daisy and Uncle Vic turned up and they were all sitting in the dining room of the caravan. God knows how big that could have been. And there's me, little three-year-old, apparently quite cute, running around (laughs) and jumping around and being myself. She said, I'll never forget this, but she's never told me it before. I have turned to Aunt Daisy and said, you're ugly. 
Oh my god. You're a horrible little girl. I was beside myself. I said to my mum all afternoon, I was like, I can't believe that you've never told me this before. What on earth was I thinking? Who would have said that to anybody? I mean, what a beastly child. Awful. I'm horrified. You look like butter wouldn't melt, but you were... You're ugly. Mean. How mean? So I just can't reconcile with that with the person that I am. I would never, ever say that to anybody. And I would never think that of anybody. And I would hate any child to say that to somebody. Where would I get that from? It's so awful. Kids say the strangest things. I remember my niece, who I absolutely adore and who is the loveliest, sweetest little girl. I was in Australia and she turned to me once and she went, we don't want you here, honey, Mish. Go back to the mountains. And wow. I started crying. It was so hurtful. And oh. You know what? Kids just say stuff they don't mean. That was quite specific, though. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> so is your ugly. It's quite harsh, isn't it? From a three-year-old, though. Harsh. I mean, where did that yeah. come from? It's really upset me. Well, you're all right. You turned out to be a lovely human who doesn't think anyone's ugly. Just still, I'm still thinking, you know, what else did I say or do in that at that age? that, you know, I wouldn't approve of today. Who knows? I'm sure I said mean things to my sisters and still do. people in general. Oh. <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> I think it's time to wrap this up. Thank you so much for your time today, Michelle. All that wonderful research. That story was fabulous. I really enjoyed it. Edge of seat stuff. And thank you for your uh, lovely thoughts on um, the Australian wildlife and hot tips on the ocean. Yes. And with that in mind, there's really only one thing left to say, Geordie. I'm confused, but I will say, <laughs> wherever you are, whatever you do, just, just keep, keep eavesdropping. 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 Eavesdropping.